almost anything our, our kids will do in their future, it's going to be via the internet or via their digital devices. So that's their literacy today. They have got to learn how to use these things well to their full capacity and keep them in balance for virtually any career they're going to go into. Diversity of ideas is harder than it looks. Welcome to Innovation for All, conversations on the social impact of innovation with your host, Shana Alkvist. Welcome to the Innovation for All podcast, where it's my job to speak with innovators and technologists on issues of culture, social systems, and diversity. I'm your host, Shana Alkvist. Today, I spoke with Diana Graber. Diana is the author of Raising Humans in a Digital World, Helping Kids Build a Healthy Relationship with Technology, and is the founder of cybercivics.com and cyberwise.org, two organizations that advocate for digital literacy for kids and adults. We don't do a lot of episodes about kids on this show. Why did I want to have Diana on? It doesn't take a genius to figure out that technology has exploded over the last couple decades. You know, my two-year-old doesn't know how to operate a smartphone, but it wouldn't surprise me if he figured it out. But with the quick rise of this technology was sort of a lack of social norms, a lack of social understanding about what things are and aren't okay online, um, you know, what what habits we should have, how, how we should interact with technology, really, you know. And although Diana's work focuses on kids and and teaching kids to understand how to interact with tech, I think a lot of us adults can relate to this, right? Like negotiating that relationship with your smartphone. Are you should you use it at dinner? You know, should you use it while you're watching television? So even if you don't give two craps about kids these days, I think you're going to enjoy this episode. We talk about everything from responsibilities around online reputation management. I mean, I know that I had a live journal from college online publicly for way too long (laughs) to issues of, you know, sexting as a teenager. What are the legal risks that are associated with that? To thinking about whether it's okay to maybe break up with someone online or via text and what the sort of benefits are to that, it's easier. And what the risks are of that, it's maybe too easy. One of the questions I posed to Diana is, maybe are teenagers more adept at dealing with technology than adults? Now, that's not to say that this is only for the childless. If you do have kids and care about their relationships with technology, uh, we do touch on some of the most common mistakes that parents make when they're guiding how their children should interact with technology and just some, you know, solid recommendations that are maybe based on research and evidence about how to navigate those relationships. And before we get to today's episode, a quick request. If you like Innovation for All, if you're enjoying these conversations, if there's an episode in particular that you really enjoyed, I hope you'll help us share it with more people, more people that you think will enjoy the the kinds of conversations we're having, the issues that we're exploring. So, If you're enjoying Innovation for All, please share it with a friend or two or rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps us reach more people that want to be part of this conversation. And with that, please enjoy my conversation with Diana Graber. Diana Graber, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So 30 years ago, teenagers weren't using the internet. They weren't using Facebook because many of those things didn't literally exist. So 30 years ago, there certainly wasn't someone like you teaching cyber civics to middle schoolers around America. How on earth did you go about creating this role? Oh boy. Well, you're right. I mean, even 10 years ago, it's so hard to imagine this, but the iPad 
pad is turning 10 years old this year. So <laughs> we are still really new in this whole thing. And for me personally, you know, my background was in video and film production. And then I had kids and my kids approached middle school and the world changed and they were dealing with digital devices. And I really didn't know how to help them. And I wanted to learn more about that world. So I went back to school and got a master's in something called media psychology and social change. And while I was there, you know, I kind of shifted my interest from video and film production to media literacy because I was learning all this great stuff about how to help empower kids to use devices positively and productively. And I felt like all that academic research wasn't reaching the people who needed it most, which were parents and teachers. And so that was the impetus to start CyberWise, which is a site for parents. Our motto is no grown-up left behind. And then from there, you know, my kids were getting towards middle school. So at the school that they went to, I offered to teach a course called Cyber Civics, which is basically digital literacy for middle school students. And that sort of created this whole career. That program that we just tested in a charter school here in Southern California is now being taught in schools in 42 U.S. states and four other countries. So it was really, you know, serendipity, I guess, <laughs> having children and being interested in digital media that launched this whole new career. Well, even to unpack something you just said, to make that pitch of like, hey, I know the internet's new, but I'm an expert in it and I can teach this course to the school. Like, how did you approach that even, you know, well, getting that first gig when something is so new and really nobody has expertise? Yeah, I mean, when that was a thing, you know, this little school that my kids attended experienced its first, you know, pretty minor by today's standards, but it was cyberbullying incident nonetheless. And everyone was confused. The, the administrator found himself dealing with like, crying students and irate parents coming in and out of his office, you know, eating up his administrative time. And he hardly even knew what Facebook was, you know, at the time. And I was really the only person around that had studied this and sort of had some solutions. So, you know, he had the foresight to say, look at, go in there and start working with the kids, you know? So he gave me that opportunity and really together with the students, we devised a curriculum to teach them digital literacy and how to, you know, use internet tools safely and wisely. Yeah. So what is digital literacy? Well, it's sort of the broad spectrum. You know, the way I define it, it encompasses everything from digital citizenship, with, which is the safe and responsible use of tools. It includes information literacy that helps you use the internet as a powerful research tool. And then probably most importantly, it includes media literacy, which is use, using your critical thinking skills to analyze media messages. Mm, so this is like dealing with fake news and understanding how to interpret and yeah. evaluate content. Yeah. And the thing with digital literacy, it's really, really broad. <laughs> I mean, I would bore you probably for the next hour if I told you all the topics it encompasses. And I think that's where adults get confused because a lot of times, you know, we think, oh, I've prepared my kid to use digital tools safely. I'm done. And, you know, that's just the very, very beginning. There are so many what things. Are they, what do they typically mean when they say that? Well, you know, for an adult, we get stuck at the things like cyberbullying and online predators and things like that. We really get worried about giving our kids the skills to protect themselves against those things. And certainly that's important, but that's just the stepping stone. You know, from there, we want to teach our kids how to protect their privacy or how to, you know, search the internet or understand what Wikipedia is or understand copyright and then get into media literacy and using digital tools to make things and be productive and connect with others. And so it's a broad spectrum of literacies or understandings that kids need in order to be super digitally literate. 
I'm shaking my head as you list all these skills, because in many ways, I think these are skills that adults are not, they're one, not prepared to offer counsel on. But more importantly, I don't believe many of us understand how to do these things ourselves. And I'm sure that's something we'll come back to. But to start off, can you walk through maybe what a typical lesson looks like or what the program looks like broadly? Well, just to back up a little bit, I was laughing to myself when you said that, because I remember the first year I taught cyber civics, a sixth grade boy leaving the classroom said, Mrs. Faber, you really need to teach these lessons to our parents. <laughs> I thought that was so cute, but so true too, because my generation didn't have the opportunity to learn all this. And, and we learned by default and we've made a lot of mistakes. You know? And so that's really my goal with cyber civics is to help kids not make those mistakes and have these capacities under their belts. What does the curriculum look like? Okay, well, you asked about day one, so I'll tell you number one lesson. And, and this is a lesson I actually got from a great book called Digital Community, Digital Citizen by Jason Oler. And he talks about teaching children or anyone really to become a detective. Okay, so tech in the middle. So day one of cybersetics, the kids walk in the classroom and I ask them, you know, hey, when I talk about technology, what's the first thing that pops in your mind? And so for a typical 12-year-old, they're going to tell you Fortnite, <laughs> you know, YouTube. Instagram, Snapchat, computers, iPads, they're going to talk about all the technologies that they're familiar with today. And so really the purpose of this lesson is to teach kids that technology has existed for a very long time. You know, for example, in ancient, way, way back in ancient Greece and Rome, they uh, had something called the stylus, which was the very first piece of technology that allowed mankind to record their memories on paper or back in those days on papyrus or even stone. And so that gets us into a discussion about all kinds of tools and how they both connect people together and disconnect people together. So, so in the case of the stylus, how does that connect versus disconnect people? Well, for example, you know, back, what I tell the kids is back then, you'd think this is a great invention, right? Because all of a sudden people can write things down. But actually, there was a great thinker at the time by the name of Socrates, and he believed that the stylus was a terrible piece of technology because before it was invented, people had to rely on their memories to tell stories. And with its use, he believed mankind would lose the use of their memories, and that would be a really bad thing for our culture. And so, you know, that just goes to show you that whenever a new piece of technology is introduced to mankind, there's going to be people that are resistant to it. They're going to think of things that it's going to make worse or disconnect us from one another. Um, and that's been typical throughout the ages whenever a new piece of technology has been introduced. So yeah, so it sounds like when you walk in, the first piece of the lesson is to just identify what technology is and that there are controversies around it. Exactly. And the thing that I love about that lesson is when you do it with kids, it kind of opens our minds past the technology of the day. Because they're so focused on using their you know, smartphones to connect to each other. It's the new greatest thing. But I want them to just take a step back and to consider the pluses and minuses of the tools they use and to understand that they're using the tool. They can use it well or they can use it poorly, but it's simply a tool that they have the capacity to wield in positive or negative ways. 
Do you feel like they're willing to see the negative ways that technology can be used? Because I can imagine as a, a snotty teenager at one point myself, that it would be like, no, it's just all great. I love Instagram or like Snapchat's how I connect. I mean, are they willing to explore the downsides to these things? Well, you know, that's why I like to start with other technologies first. You know, like, get, let me give you an example. Like another one that we talk about is the microwave. Okay, so the microwave was great. Because all of a sudden, people could have meals super fast. You know, you'd be in and out of the house. But on the other hand, it meant that families weren't standing around the stove and cooking together. So there's a great example of a technology that has both pluses and minuses. And the advantage of talking about past technologies and having kids look at them that way is that when they get to today's technologies, they've honed that skill. And then all of a sudden, they do see some of the downsides. I mean, kids are absolutely aware of the fact that when their mom's looking at their smartphone during a soccer game, they're not watching them play. And that's a disconnection that the kids feel very deeply. And so they certainly see the downsides, maybe not when they're using them, but when other people are using them. Mm. So this cyber civics course, what ages do you typically teach it to? I started in middle school, which is sixth grade. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Every time that a person uses the internet or goes online, we encounter a bunch of ethical scenarios. You know, do I post something that's going to hurt somebody's feelings? Do I upload a photo that maybe my friend doesn't look so great in? Those are ethical scenarios that kids before middle school are simply not prepared to deal with. It takes a child about 12 years of life to have the capacity in their head to do ethical thinking. I mean, the, the mechanics just aren't there yet before middle school. And so that's why we start cyber civics in sixth grade, because then they're finally ready to do that abstract uh, ethical thinking that's so important, not only in the classroom, but when they go online. Yeah. And, and what form does the curriculum take? Is it, you know, once a week? Is it every day? Is it for the whole year? Is it for many years? Well, it's designed to be taught once a week for like 50 minutes throughout the entirety of sixth, seventh and eighth grade. That's how I teach it at our pilot school. And that's how most of our, te- our schools teach it. But that being said, you know, it's super flexible. So a lot of schools just cannot find that kind of time. So in those instances, we have a more accelerated course that they can teach. Sometimes they do it during their advisory period, or maybe they have two weeks at the beginning of the school year where they can address this topic. So it's pretty flexible in that manner. I always worry that Schools have become so regimented with test taking that there are lots of important skills we aren't making time to teach our kids. And this is an example of something that might fall in that bucket for me. How have you approached that with schools? How have you convinced them that this is something that's worthwhile that they should be spending time on? Well, I like to tell them a story. (laughs) This is one of the stories I really love. But I remember I was teaching a cyber civics lesson on, I think it was fake news to eighth grade students. And I overheard two girls talking And one said to the other, you know, I don't understand why we have algebra five days a week and we have cyber civics just one day a week. I'm going to use this way more than I'm ever going to use algebra. (laughs) And I thought about that because everything our kids are going to do in their future almost, I mean, I cannot even think of a job, honestly, maybe firemen, maybe, but even they use their smartphones, right? I mean, almost anything our, our kids will do in their future, it's going to be via the internet or via their digital devices. So that's their literacy today. They have got to learn how to use these things well to their full capacity and keep them in balance for virtually any career they're going to go into. So that's the first thing I would tell a school. Secondarily, everything they do in cyber civics is kind of English language arts. I mean, we do a ton of writing, speaking, investigation, research. 
I mean, those are things they need to learn today if they're going to do a research paper or write an essay in, in high school or beyond. So, you know, it's really an integral skill that they're going to need no matter what they do. So we've covered an intro sort of lesson. I'm wondering, what does it look like when the students get a little farther along in the program? Like, what would a typical lesson look like for an eighth grader? What is a lesson that might be included in the eighth grade? Well, one of the lessons I really love, and this comes at the very end of eighth grade, is when we start looking at artificial intelligence, because this is really their future, you know, future technologies. And so we do some role play around possible future inventions and who's building the artificial intelligence and having them pretend that they're a designer and they're posed with these ethical scenarios and how would they build that into the tools of the day? What kind of ethical scenarios? Well, you know, there's a, one that used to be used offline about, you know, let's say you're, you're making an, a self-driving car and you're approaching some guys working in the street and you know that if you go forward, you're going to kill six workers. But if the car jumps on the sidewalk, it's going to potentially kill a family that's strolling a baby but if you don't do that, you know, there's all these different possible scenarios that could happen with the self-driving car. And so I, I tasked the kids to pretend that they're designing it. Like, what would they do? What choice would they make? And so it's important for them to go through that scenario, just thinking about like future artificial intelligences. Who's doing that thinking ahead of time? <laughs> who's making those decisions? And are we okay with those decisions? So that's a super fun lesson to do. That's something I wonder about a lot, this idea of, I think, and again, for me, one of the major themes of, of your book and your work is, you, not that you explicitly say it, but that adults are bad at a lot of these things too. So one of the things that you just mentioned there is this idea of who's designing it and what were the choices they were making. And I wonder if, do lessons like these help kids realize that these decisions are also being made in other parts of tech that they're experiencing? So, you know, when they go onto Facebook or Instagram, the infinite scroll is there to keep them engaged, to make them not think about putting their phone down. Do you feel like these kinds of lessons help them realize that technologies are designed to keep them hooked in many ways? Oh, definitely. I mean, that's a topic that we cover in the second year of cyber civics at the very beginning of the year. I have them look at their digital diets and from there teach them about the mechanisms that are used to capture and hold their attention. And I tell you, that is a great time to teach kids these lessons because developmentally, a seventh grader is programmed to question authority, right? Mm -hmm. So when you teach them that the authority they should be questioning is not mom and dad, but the people making the smartphones they so love, you know, you should see they get fired up about it. And another lesson I love to teach them is about privacy and how every time they go online, they're giving away private information in exchange for that. They're getting customized experiences, but they're also getting targeted information based on information they've given the internet. So when you tell kids that, they don't really like that so much. I mean, they don't really like anyone making decisions for them. Uh, they don't like mom doing it. They don't like the internet doing it. So it really empowers them to think twice about the information they give away online to think twice about, you know, all the notifications that beep every time it's trying to grab their attention. And I, I wish so much that every kid would get these lessons at that age, because I really believe that educating this whole generation about those things will change the internet significantly in 10 to 20 years. I don't think that this generation will be so gullible when it comes to fake news. I don't think they'll be so naive about giving away personal information and then be surprised at what happens when, when they do that. I think that these are essential 
life skills to give to kids. And it will really change, I hope, the internet in 10 to 20 years. Well, you mentioned privacy and engaging online and how much information one should give away. One of the other things I think is an interesting challenge is as a teenager, managing, you might call it your personal brand or just your digital reputation. Is this too great a responsibility for kids that to a large extent, their brains aren't fully developed yet, yet their engagements online might live forever? You know, uh, I have a great story about that that I'd love to share with you. But even at the school where I teach cyber civics, kids still make mistakes when it comes to their digital reputation. I mean, they just do because, you know, they're in the moment, they're posting things. And no matter how many times we talk about this in the classroom, you know, they're kids, they're programmed to make mistakes. So this happened just recently at the school where I teach, um, you know, some kids posted something that they were singing along to a rap song that had some bad words in it and parents saw it and it was a horrible situation. So, you know, but I used it as a teachable moment in the other classes. And it was so cute because when I talked about it with some eighth graders, you know, eighth grade girl raises her hand and she said, don't adults understand that our prefrontal lobes are still developing? (laughs) And it was so precious and it's so true. You know, that's the whole thing here is that Unfortunately, the world that we're raising kids in, you know, there's this thing that uh, their digital reputation, every time they do something, it goes online, it stays online forever. And someday they might be Googled and someone will see something stupid that they did. And that's a shame because it's a really, really hard thing for kids to be perfect online. And and we shouldn't expect perfection, but we can, you know, we can teach them to be better. And that's something that we cover a lot in cyber civics and a myriad of ways. But you're right. It's a, it's a tough world our kids are growing up in. I've always wondered too whether those standards will change, whether these now teenagers, when they're 30 and they're evaluating how people exist online, whether they're going to be so critical as you we know, might be today. I think they'll be less critical and I think also they'll be smarter. So, you know, I think both of those things will converge to make things better. But at the moment, it's a harsh reality out there for kids. I mean, there's not a day that goes by that we don't see a headline about somebody that's a young adult, you know, paying the price for a stupid post they made as a teenager. And that's unfortunate, you know? Well, and I wonder, I get the impression from your book that a lot of the issues that we see where kids are engaging online, you could think of them as sort of old school, regular old teenager issues. The technology isn't making it worse, really. It's just the new place for them to occur. I'm wondering, are there places where you feel like that is the case versus places where technology does seem to create new, real, legitimate risks? Well, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, kids haven't changed. It's just the places they're hanging out and the places they're doing things with each other have changed. And in these places, their actions are recorded and they're permanent. And that's what's different. So, you know, that's a really important thing for adults to remember the fact that kids are the same and and to cut them a little slack for that. Are there places where you feel that isn't the case, where there is some kind of new unusual danger or concern? Well, that's an interesting question because it really depends on how you look at it. I mean, almost every corner of the internet, there's potential for danger, right? So it really goes back to that idea that they're tools and it's how we use them that make them safe or unsafe. Why did you decide to move from the in-person course to the book, Raising Humans in a Digital World? Well, for a number of reasons. You know, I do a lot of parent presentations and generally when I present to parents, you know, I get 90 minutes or two hours. 
and it's a it's an exercise in frustration because it's like, okay, which of the 200 topics do I cover in 90 minutes? And I always feel like that's such a drop in the bucket and I, I have so much more that I want parents to know. And so that's really why I wrote the book. The other reason is, you know, through this work, I'm so blessed that I know so many digital experts and each one is just passionate and knows so much about their specific topic. And so in the book, I interview like 30 some different people and share their knowledge as well. And then lastly, you know, I'm a realist. I mean, not every school in America is going to find time to teach digital literacy in the classroom. And while I think that's a shame, I figured if I put some little lessons in the book, at the very least, parents could do these at home with their children. And even kids who don't get it in the classroom might get a little of this education at home. One of the things I really enjoy about the book is that it's subtle and not alarmist. It, you know, it seems to really gather the data as we currently understand it and make informed recommendations rather than just alarmist recommendations. In the book, you mentioned that people often ask you, what's the right age to give my kid X, Y, or Z? And you point to rather than a particular age that there are particular behaviors or personality traits that might indicate your child is ready. And the, the questions you suggest that people, that adults ask themselves, that parents ask themselves, I feel like are incredibly sophisticated ways of evaluating technology that I'm not even sure most adults can do. So just some questions. Do your children know how to manage their online reputations? Do your children know how to unplug? Do your children know how to make and maintain safe and healthy relationships? Do they know how to protect their privacy and personal information? I mean, to a large extent, I feel like one, these are the right questions, but two, I'm not sure that adults are doing very well at these either. You know, it's funny that you're reading those because that's sort of why I wrote them because parents generally go through that list and then I see their expressions change like, holy cow, do I know how to do this? You know, And the reason I made that list is I wanted to have a place where people could look and see like, wow, you do have to know a lot in order to be a really great digital citizen. And I think that sometimes we forget that because again, we get stuck on the safety issues, the cyberbullying and the sexting. And there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah, and I'm, I'm flipping through the book now to see if we can maybe walk through one of these questions. So do your children know how to unplug? What advice would you give to parents who either want to teach their children to unplug or want to learn how to unplug themselves a little bit better? Well, one of the activities I love to do with students in the classroom, and I include it in the book, is to go on a 24-hour digital media vacation. I'm using my air quotes here, <laughs> trying to sell it to make it sound more exciting. And you know, usually when you, uh, you know, when I challenge seventh graders with this, they fight me like crazy and try to make me understand how that's absolutely impossible to do today. Which it, it's hard. It's not impossible, but it is hard. And usually kids come, you know, they hate that homework assignment. But then they do it, and I tell you, nine times out of ten, they come back and they're like, "Wow, that was the best day." You know, I, I went outside or I rode my bike or I connected with a neighbor. And it's almost like they forgot how to be unplugged and realize that sometimes it takes the stress away of not worrying about who you're missing online or what notification you're not responding to. And so I really like to challenge parents to do that with their kids. Usually it's way harder for the parents than the kids and the kids notice. you know. And so that's a whole topic of discussion. But I think that's a really important activity for all of us to do, to take breaks now and then and to reconnect just with ourselves and each other and realize that we can survive 24 hours without a device. I mean, how do you approach the argument though that 
things have changed that you do need your device. You, as an adult, you needed to check your work email. As a teenager, you needed to do your homework. Well, you know, that's the thing. Like when I, when I talk to the kids about this in the classroom, generally they say, you know, my mom's not going to be able to do it because she has to check her text messages or my dad has to get his email. And I think about that and it's like, do we have to be connected all through Saturday or Sunday? I mean, I understand if you're a doctor on call or something, but you know, for the rest of us, I mean, can't we take a day off? Are we really living in the kind of world where we expect each other to be at our online beck and call 24 seven, every single day of the week? I don't know if that's so healthy. And do you have a follow-up exercise? So I could see the benefit of doing this one time, but then quickly forgetting. That's like when you eat a bunch of salads and you're like, this is better than eating burgers. <laughs> but then sure enough, a couple of weeks go by and there you are eating burgers. Do you have a recommendation for people who want to maintain that? Yeah. You know, actually my students asked me to do it more than once because the first time they hate it and then they realize, hey, that was kind of fun. And it's per their request that we do it more than once, you know, and I have better buy-in as we get through it a second or third time. So I think, you know, like you say, this is not something you do once. I think you try to take little breaks here and then and rebalance yourself and realize that you can survive without being plugged in. And then you go back to being plugged in and maybe you use it a little more mindfully or you're able to put it down here and there. I think that's a really important skill for all of us to just find balance. I I know for me, I need it because I can tend to be online forever. And, you know, when I do these forced you know, walking away here and there, it really makes me feel better and happier. Well, and I could also imagine that the first time you take a break, there are no habits to replace the old habit, right? So, you know, 30 years ago, maybe people were out playing together or they were reading books or they were at the malt shop, but now those habits aren't ingrained in us in the same way. So I'm wondering if after they've done this a few times, do they get better at having sort of healthy substitutions Well, you know, I forgot to mention that before I give kids that assignment in the classroom, I have them make a wish list of a hundred offline things they'd love to do. A hundred's a lot. (laughs) They never get to that many, but that's the goal. But I want them to make like a, a list of like, you know, it's like their bucket list of offline activities. And, you know, the sky's the limit here, but there's things obviously that are reachable or attainable on that list. And then that's the list, their go to list whenever boredom strikes. I'm like, go to your your bucket list and pick something off there that you could do. And so it's, it's kind of fun. Cause it's like, Oh, you know, I used a pogo stick or you know, they think of these random things, but the whole idea is you want kids to replace those online, you know, endorphin inducing experiences with an offline endorphin inducing experience. And, and who knows, maybe in the future, those are the things that they'll want to do. Have you ever been in a meeting where your team disagreed about the best course of action? Maybe you didn't know which message best resonates with your audience or exactly who your customers are, or maybe which features they want you to build. Customer research from an impartial third party can offer the clarity you need. That's why PhD Insights offers customer research delivered. Customer research delivered uses a five-step process to apply customer research to answer your pressing business problem. Within four weeks, they'll design, host, deploy, and analyze a quantitative study so you can make better decisions to keep your business growing. Learn more about customer research delivered by visiting phd-insights.com. That's phd-insights.com. So you and I were just talking offline before we came back from break. One of the things I really like about the book is how many stories you get to tell in it about 
kids engaging with the content. And it seems like these are just issues kids are thinking about and that every day you walk into one of these classes, students had some sort of scandal the prior day. <laughs> right. It's, that's the thing. It's so funny since I wrote, I finished writing the book, you know, a year ago. And since then I'm like, oh, I have so many more stories I want to tell <laughs> because literally every day there's something. I mean, there are so many issues that kids are dealing with online and they're all interesting and new and fun. And there's always a teachable moment. So yeah, I love to share the stories. Let's talk about a super scary one, shall we? So I think for parents, let's talk about sexting, which you can imagine. So I, at this point, don't have a teenager. I have have a toddler, so he should not be sexting at those ages. But I can imagine how, as an adult raising a teenager, that would feel especially frightening. And one of the guests we're going to have in an upcoming episode of Innovation for All is Jeff Temple, who does research on sexting. Yeah. Interesting evidence that sexting, for instance, isn't correlated with low self-esteem. And I think broadly, he makes the arguments that sexting is sort of a new channel for normal teenage exploration of sexuality. Um, I'm wondering, you know, where you land on all this and maybe what some of the special risks are here. Well, I love his research and I talk about it in the book. So yeah, he's going to be a terrific guest. And I think I land on the same place probably he does and a lot of other experts in that, again, children haven't changed. It's a normal developmental thing that happens as they reach their teenage years, as they become interested in the opposite sex. Kids are the same. They've always been like that. But now that developmental process is happening at the same time they have a camera in their hand. So, you know, who's surprised when they take pictures and they share them with one another? I think where the problem is, is that we as a society have not done a good job teaching children about the very serious consequences of getting caught sexting. The thing, you know, I just taught a sexting lesson to a group of eighth grade students. And the thing that surprised me is that Kids absolutely know what sexting is, but they do not know that you can get into just as much trouble for receiving a sex message as sending one. So that's a super important tidbit to tell kids because, you know, generally a kid has hundreds, if not thousands of friends and followers and people they text and group chats and all that. And to come to the realization that if any of those people send them naked image and they get in trouble, they get found out, they could be in serious trouble. That's a really important thing to tell kids. Does that risk assume that the sender is also underage or is it equally risky if the person is over 18? Well, you know, whoever has that image on their phone is the holder of child pornography. And that's the thing today is that most of our laws and most of our states have not updated themselves to consider, you know, the new devices and what's happening. So a lot of states are still processing these things through their child pornography laws. And that's where we're running into trouble because if you know a child's got pictures of an underage kid on their phone, that's considered child pornography in some states. Wow. So that feels a little bit like a red herring. Like it sounds like we want the laws to be updated because I mean, obviously we, we don't want child pornography floating around out there, but teenagers engaging in this kind of behavior might be seen as a little bit different. And it is in some cases, but still, you know, let's err on the side of caution and just educate kids and let them know that, you know, they just can't do this stuff because it's, they get in trouble. (laughs) You know, it's just not right. And so, you know, that's the downside of sexting. The upside is, you know, for the first time ever, teenage pregnancy rates are super low. You know, (laughs) kids aren't getting pregnant at the rates that they used to. So a lot of their engaging is happening electronically instead of person to person. 
Ooh, yeah, that's something I absolutely want to ask you about in a second. But before we move on from sexting, so what should a teenager or I guess an adult do when they encounter, if and when they encounter some sort of graphic sext? Well, what I tell my students is if they were to get a naked photo to delete it immediately from their phone, because that's the thing, they don't want to have it on their phone. And that doesn't mean they can't tell a trusted adult or a parent that it happened, but they definitely do not want to keep that image around. So get rid of it. And then obviously don't ask for naked images. Don't send naked images. Don't share naked images. <laughs> you know, it's just not a smart thing to do. There, You can get into serious trouble for doing it and kids have. I mean, I guess the other perceived risk here is that that image, so like, let's say, you know, you're sending what you believe to be your partner, let's say a a nude picture. I guess there's the concern that they're going to distribute that more widely in in sort of the era of revenge porn, quote unquote. Yeah. And there's so many stories of that happening. You know, you think you're in a great relationship, but you're young, you break up and someone's mad. And then it's, in some cases, they'll share those images afterwards. And that's happened more than once. I tell a story in the book about Peter who works with me now at Cyber Civics. He was a former high school teacher and coach and saw this happen at the high school he was at. And it really destroyed the life of the poor girl whose images were shared all around the school. And it was so heartbreaking for him to watch. And that's why he came to work with me. And he, he just thought it was too important not to teach middle school students these lessons so that that would not happen again. So, I mean, is the lesson here just don't send sex or is there something else that you can teach students if it's damage control time? Well, there's two things. Don't send them in the first place. If it happens, know what to do about it. And again, what I tell kids is erase it, tell a trusted adult. If it's being shared in a social media network, contact that network, try to get the pictures taken down. I mean, there are things you can do afterwards to mitigate the damage, but really the best thing to do is to prevent it in the first place. Yeah, and you mentioned delete it. That feels a little counterintuitive when if something goes wrong, you want to demonstrate that there's evidence that something happened. Why do you feel so strongly that it's delete the picture? Well, that's the advice I've actually gotten from experts in this area. And the reason for that is you do not want to be holding child pornography on your phone. If there was ever an investigation or if they looked into the situation... The phone company could pull up your records and show that you did get it and you did delete it. But the safest thing for a student to do at the moment is to get rid of the image. And that's even before showing a trusted adult? Yes. Yeah. Could that implicate them? It could, and especially if it's a teacher, because if you were to send it to a teacher, then all of a sudden the teacher has the image on their phone and that's no good. If you show a teacher, that teacher has to report it. So the best thing is to get rid of it and then to talk to your trusted adults about it. I know. And, you know, I I visit a lot of schools and this topic comes up a lot. And honestly, there's not really good advice out there to kids. And the advice is different everywhere you go. You know, I take my cues from a really great resource, um, the Cyberbullying Research Center. Those guys have some excellent resources on their website regarding sexting, cyberbullying, and all this stuff. And, And that's really where I've learned how to give parents and children and students and teachers the best advice, the most timely advice. And it's interesting with sexting, it's really opposite of what we tell kids about cyberbullying. You know, when I teach students about cyberbullying, my advice is take a screenshot of the evidence, you know, save it to show it. And, you know, that's not the same advice that you want to give when it comes to sexting. Well, and you mentioned something interesting earlier that I want to come back to. So 
although we do see that now kids are sexting and engaging in sort of sexual exploration online, at the same time, we have seen across society a decrease in unintended pregnancy rates. Um, I think people are waiting longer to have sex. So there is some evidence that because teenagers are now engaging more digitally, perhaps they're engaging less in real life and that might have some additional benefits, like they're not getting pregnant. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's upsides and downsides, right? I mean, that's definitely an upside. But yeah, I don't think kids are engaging face-to-face as much as they used to in the past. So that's changing. That's changing their interactions with one another. It's changing the rate at which they're growing up and being able to have those face-to-face human contact experiences. So, you know, like we talked about earlier, tools change society and there's pluses and there's minuses. I think too, when you and I were, we had a prior conversation before today, you had mentioned that one of the benefits of interacting online is that, and this is for adults as well, you have additional time to sort of think and respond and maybe shape how your interactions look. And I think you mentioned to me that kids are now more likely to break up online than in person. Yeah, that's the thing. (laughs) They do. But you know, what kids tell me, and this is, I'm talking teenagers and older teens, is that they know that that's, as they would say, a very douchebag thing to do, <laughs> that that's not the way to break up. And a lot of times when they see their peers doing it, they'll give them a hard time for doing it that way. So I really feel like kids are getting smarter with their tools and they're realizing when things are appropriate online and when other things are inappropriate to be done online. And in a way that's comforting that they're starting to understand that perhaps better than we are. Well, I think about the huge loss too of information that occurs when you engage online. Like you don't get to see, in many ways, you don't get to see the repercussion of your actions. You know, if you're if you're breaking up with your boyfriend, you don't get to see his, you know, long face and maybe that twang of guilt in the same way. Right. And I'm wondering if by removing those social cues, we're, we're doing, or I guess teenagers are doing themselves a disservice in the long run. Well... That's a great question because when you think about it, you know, it is easier sometimes to have online interactions because you don't have to deal with those human emotions. But I think eventually a human is going to have to learn how to deal with other humans, right? So that's really why I think it's important for adults to carve out time for kids or help kids carve out time to have experiences that are face-to-face and human and and to understand emotions and to read facial expressions. I mean, all those human capacities are super important and they're best developed online. And I think it's important for parents to make sure that their kids are getting those experiences. So something we alluded to a little bit earlier, Jean Twenge, I believe I'm saying that right, has a book, iGen, in which she makes a pretty compelling case that the rise of smartphone ownership among teenagers may have created a massive drop in adolescent happiness. Um, and maybe declining self-esteem. Where do you land on this? Well, I think actually in her book, she doesn't say the word may. I think she says it absolutely does. <laughs> and I think that's where maybe I disagree a bit because I don't think that there's been a direct correlation established. And I think it's more complex than that. I think our digital tools in some cases might make kids feel depressed and detached from each other. But, you know, in other cases, it connects kids and at a time where they might need to connect with friends, to, you know, explore other interests, to maybe talk to people when they are feeling depressed. I mean, I think the story is more complicated than that. There are definitely pluses and minuses, but I think to blame depression solely on our digital devices is not really fair to the digital device. I think there's a lot of things that could be making kids depressed today. I mean, 
it's a really tough world out there. I mean, college is hard to get into. It's climate change. Kids are very concerned about that. I mean, there's a lot of things that can be contributing to teenage depression. So, you know, I think it's important for us to remember again, you know, I can't say it enough. Digital tools are simply tools. It's how you use them that can make them good or bad. And in a lot of cases, kids are using them to not, you know, when they do feel depressed to reach out for help or to their friends. It sounds like teaching kids, we could call it individual responsibility, personal responsibility, giving parents the, the tools they need to do to teach that to their children, giving schools the tools they need to teach that to their students. Do you feel like there is need for additional regulation around anything? Like, is the system broken in, in any way that you'd like to see changed in addition to these other more personal pursuits that parents and teachers can take? Oh, yeah. Where do you want me to start? <laughs> <laughs> Anywhere you like. Yeah, I guess I would love to hear from your perspective. What are some of the things that you feel like system-wide could and should change? No, I just, I really feel like the social media companies need to step up to the plate too, because, you know, as we spoke earlier, young kids just are really not ready to use social media. And so many of the problems that we see today, you know, the bad posts, the cyberbullying are because kids too young are online. And, you know, they say that you have to be 13 to use Instagram, Snapchat, et cetera, but they make it so darn easy for kids younger than that to sign up. I mean, every kid knows how easy it is to lie and all of a sudden, presto, you have an account. I mean, the experts I spoke to while writing my book, you know, underscored how the technology definitely exists to do age verification better. So that's mm -hmm. one thing that I really have a problem with. And then, oh my goodness, you know, the live streaming of horrible events that happen. I mean, there's a lot of examples in the news, you know, a horrible shooting in New Zealand. There was, you know, the shooting in Florida, you know, a year and a half ago. Those things are live streamed and broadcast in real time online. And kids are seeing these images that are unfiltered and they have no adult there to help them process that information. I really think we have to do better and there's got to be technology. I mean, if Siri can listen to my conversation and give me an ad five minutes later for something I've mentioned, I have to believe that the technology is there to, you know, block or at least delay these live streams until someone's had a chance to look at them and determine if that's safe for our kids to be viewing online. Mm. So those are two great examples. So age verification might be one. Evaluating content and live streaming might be another Anything else in the online space where you'd like to see maybe, you know, the other half of this two-sided equation step up to the plate? We have privacy, of course. I mean, so much of children's personal information is being collected in all the apps and the websites that they use. And that's another area. If, I, if a child doesn't understand that, you know, all of a sudden they're being profiled or targeted or information is being customized to them. I think that we can do a much better job in the privacy arena as well. Speaking of privacy, I'm wondering, are there places where you see teenagers being maybe more adept at dealing with technology than adults? <laughs> well, you know, that's a great question because kids are really pretty good at creating privacy online. I mean, they know absolutely that when they have an Instagram account that mom, dad, and everyone else knows about it. So that's why they create Finstas or fake Instagram accounts where they can share with just selected friends and maybe do things that they wouldn't or post things that they wouldn't post on their more public accounts. So kids have a pretty good way of circumventing <laughs> privacy, you know, have, creating privacy for themselves online, sometimes not only in fake accounts, but in just the language that they use, the coded language or the, 
the things they share. So yeah, they're pretty savvy online in ways that we don't expect. It seems like a lot of your recommendations are based on as much research as available and evidence as available at that time. Are there any common pieces of advice that you think are either more nuanced than we'd like to believe or are just plain wrong? Well, one thing I'd like to talk about is we're pretty clear about to kids about don't post this, don't post that. And what kids will say is, you know, a lot of times when we're posting things, we're joking around or we're being silly or we're being sarcastic. And generally when an adult looks at our posts, they take it very literally. Mm -hmm. And so that's an area that I don't think research has really covered well. And I think it's an area that we're just starting to understand. What I would like to see happen is maybe adults to cut kids a little bit of slack (laughs) and realize that, you know, they're experimenting online and sometimes they're they're being silly and something that we might jump to a, a bad conclusion about doesn't mean the same thing to an adult that it may mean to a child. So I don't know if that I'm articulating that well. And, and it's something that I've learned from my own kids. Sometimes I'll look at, you know, one of my daughter's Instagram account and say, oh, I can't believe you put that on there. And then they'll explain it to me. And I thought, gosh, that's not what I thought it meant at all. So I think there's a language that kids use that adults don't really understand. And we really have to cut that generation a little bit of slack. Mm. Does that make sense? <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, totally. And I try to think back to when I was a teenager and it felt like, but mom, you just don't understand. <laughs> hard to articulate, you know? And, and I think that that's why I feel really lucky that I get to spend time around kids because it's just so complex right now. I mean, everything they're doing, thinking, experiencing is getting thrown online and adults are looking at everything. And that's never happened before because For previous generations, our thoughts, our experiences, things that we tested and tried, you know, we did it in the same thing about parking lot or the backyard or down the street. And there wasn't somebody there with a camera recording our every move and thought. And so that's super different today. And I feel like we're just trying to understand this better. So the book is Raising Humans in a Digital World, Helping Kids Build a Healthy Relationship with Technology. What can readers find in the book that we didn't cover today? Well, I really love the title of the book because I, to me, it really speaks to what this is all about. There's so many books about screen time and this is not a book about that. It's a book about raising good humans that are going to be good, whether they're online or off and how more difficult it is today when our humans are growing up in a world full of screens. So, uh, you know, we've covered a lot today, but I really want to stress the point that this is a book about maintaining the very human-like qualities that we all know are so important in our world, you know, kindness, empathy, understanding, all of those things are so maybe more important now than ever because they're a little bit easy to lose online. And I would like to see those things being maintained both online and off. One of the things that struck me about the book was that it's not a damning approach to technology. It doesn't just say that technology is bad and that kids are dumb. I think it's very nuanced, very evidence-based and really creates a lot of food for thought. Well, thank you for that. And I really have to give credit to my students for making the book that way. One thing I've learned from teaching them in the classroom is that I always go in and tell them from day one, this is a non-judgment classroom. Like we are exploring tools and there's not a right or wrong. We are talking about ways to use them better. 
And so that's really how I try to present my book is I'm not making a judgment here. I'm giving you the facts, you know, <laughs> and this is the world we're in. Let's make the best of it and help our kids really excel in this very challenging world. Well, with that, I'd like to turn to our think a little different round of questions. What's something you've changed your mind about in the last few years? You know what? Parental control software. I used to be pretty adamantly against that that because I felt like the best parental control was the brain (laughs) and helping a kid develop a smart brain so that they could control themselves online. But as I've gotten further into this work, I'm more of an advocate for parental controls, especially because parents are giving kids uh, phones at younger and younger ages. And I think if you do give a child a phone, you know, before they're a teenager, I think that we should take advantage of the really great parental control software that's out there and just give kids the little help they need in managing their time, what they access, what they download when they go online. Do you have any favorites you can recommend? Well, I really like a company called MobiSip. I know that's kind of a funny name. It's M-O-B-I-C-I-P. They just got ranked in the number one parental control software because it's super easy to use. It's super inexpensive and it does just about everything. It manages time, content, downloads. And I just think kids need a little help when they're young. What's a view that's widely held by your peers that you just aren't totally convinced by? Well, I think maybe where I buck the trend a little bit is, you know, there are others in this realm that I'm in who think that kids should be online younger and getting used to digital technologies at younger ages and that we shouldn't be so concerned about the time they spend online young. And, you know, the more I learn about digital technologies and the more time I spend around kids, I really feel like childhood is precious. And the longer you can delay giving your kid their own device, I think they will thank you in the long run. I think that in some ways, it's robbing kids of childhood, you know, looking at a screen all day. They're not looking at a lot of things in the world around them. And I think maybe that's where people will disagree with me, that maybe that's being a little light. And I, again, the more I learn about digital technologies and the complexities of the digital world, the more I'm an advocate for delaying giving a kid a device as long as you can. Is there a common practice today that you think will change in the next decade? Well, I think the pendulum is swinging as far as how much time kids like spending online. I think that they're starting to realize that it's pretty addictive. You know, research shows that even kids are saying that they feel addicted to their devices. So I'm starting to see the pendulum swing. Kids, you know, not wanting to be connected all the time. And the other thing is wanting to be more authentic, like not feeling like they have to post every second of every minute of everything they do but just to maybe have an authentic life that's not completely posted all the time. I do believe that we're seeing kids being smarter and I think the pendulum will swing on this whole social media thing. Mm. On the Innovation for All podcast, we love to explore this intersection between innovation, so business, technology, entrepreneurship, and social impact. So depending on who the guest is, as you've seen, um, that can be anything from how do we teach kids to interact with digital technology to What are technologies that are helping groups that have been been traditionally overlooked or how do groups that are less diverse influence or not influence innovation broadly? Who are two people you think would be interesting for us to speak to on the podcast? Ooh, 
Well, you know, in my book, there's like 30 people that are awesome. (laughs) So, I mean, how do I pick two out of that group? Each one is doing things that are super innovative and new and different. You know, off the top of my head, there's a guy, Alan Katzman in New York, and he works a ton with kids, you know, older than what I work with and really preparing them to apply to college and jobs and beyond in really unique ways using digital technologies. He'd be a great interview. And then another one of my favorites is Richard Geary, who is, I talk about him in my book as well. He is like, I don't know what he, what he survives on. I mean, he must drink more caffeine than I do because that guy is on a plane, train, (laughs) car every day of the week, sometimes meeting three times a day with groups and giving them presentations about their digital reputations and online life. So those are two really outstanding people in this field. So besides the book, what is a resource you can suggest if someone wants to learn more about this space? Well, there's a lot of resources out there. You know, I've got a huge library of books behind me that have helped me along the way, learning about digital literacy and, you know, my specific interest is in media psychology, the intersection of digital technologies and psychology. You know, I would maybe Google media psychology and look under books and there's just a myriad of books that are so wonderful. Do you want me to give me give you the name of some? Yeah, that'd be great. I'm going to turn around here and look at my bookshelf. <laughs> I mean, a book that I mentioned earlier that I really love is Digital Community, Digital Citizen by Jason Oler. That's been a really good one. Hold on one second. Sorry, I had to walk to the other side of my office. Still there? <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay, so I'm a big Michelle Borba fan, and she's written a whole bunch of books. But Unselfie is really a great book. It's about why empathetic kids succeed in our all-about-me world. That's a wonderful book. Also a huge fan of Sue Chef. I love her latest book, Shame Nation, which is really a great book with a foreword by um, Monica Lewinsky that talks about online shaming and trolling and all that good stuff. I did like Jean Twenge's book, iGen. I learned a lot reading it. And I, I think her research, although I don't agree with all of it, I think she does a spectacular job uh, laying out her argument. So I think that's a really important book for um, people to read. And where can people find you online? Well, I'm at a couple different places. My book's at www.dianagraber.com or raisinghumansinadigitalworld.com. The curriculum's at cybercivics.com. And then we didn't talk about it much today, but I also have a website for parents called www.cyberwise.org, our known bar motto, No Grown Up Left Behind. But it's also a great resource source for parents who want to know how to help their kids in a digital world. And we'll be sure to put all those resources and show notes on our website at innovationforallcast.com. The book is Raising Humans in a Digital World. Thank you, Diana Graber. Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation today. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I invite you to subscribe to Innovation for All on iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform. Thank you to our producer, Nia Taylor, our audio engineer, Dave Visaya, and Glorianne O'Kay, who compiles our show notes. You can view show notes from this and every episode at innovationforallcast.com.